You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Good morning. So good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Um, and it's indeed a great prep, uh, pleasure and privilege to be able to continue in our study in the book of Philippians. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read our passage for today. It's going to be Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 20, uh, 12 through 21. Hear the words from Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have obtained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank uh, praise you for this day. God, as, as always, I pray that you would take my little and make much of it. Would you glorify yourself as only you can? God, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that your word would allow minds to be transformed, to be hearts to be changed for your glory. We pray, Lord, that you would, God, be with us. Holy Spirit, even now we pray and ask that you be the greatest teacher among us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today, what we're going to talk through and, and, and really go through this, this morning is we're going to talk about five ways to grow into spiritual maturity. Five ways to grow into spiritual maturity. I'm going to give you uh, this outline already because I, I want you to have it, and I think that it will help us to walk through the text this morning. So the first thing we need to do in order to walk into spiritual maturity is this. We need humble persistence. We see that in verse 12. Secondly, we need a humble passion. We see that in verses 13 through 14. We need a humble patience that's found in verses 15 and 16. We need a humble uh, practice in verses 17 and 19. And then finally, a humble perspective in verses 20 through 21. Now, before we begin, I want you to remember the the quote that uh, that I've been quoting often 
as we've been looking at our, this passage of Scripture, and it's from Drew Willard, and it simply says this. It says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude while effort is an action. We see that in the very beginning in verse 12. We see Paul, after he gives us, this is part two, kind of what he already mentioned to us last week. Remember what he said last week in verse 7, but everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. He reminds us that he has suffered the loss of all things, but yet he considers them as rubbish or dung so that he may gain Christ. And after giving us that beautiful exposition last week, he then moves forward to helping us to understand how to continue and how to follow in his, his example that he set forward for us. So we see in verse 12, he says these words, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. This is a good reminder for us as a church that we have to have a holy discontentment. A holy discontentment is this, um, knowing that our spiritual growth begins with a sense of honesty as well as dissatisfaction. I love what Martin Luther says about this, this topic. He says, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we should be, but we are growing towards it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified by him. Notice here that Paul jumps into a very, very important principle and point for us to take down and to take note of is that mature people humbly acknowledge that they haven't arrived. Mature people humbly acknowledge that they are still in process. Church family, be careful, and be careful of an attitude that makes you think otherwise, that makes you think that you have arrived, that makes you think that you have obtained or you are perfect in any, any sense of the word. I want to take some time even before we get started. I just want to say thank you to you as a church because you've been a great example for me in this way. You've been a great example of, of helping me to understand and helping me to know that we haven't arrived yet, but yet we still hunger for growth and development in Christ. I've seen it. I've seen it for myself. I've seen older men submit to younger men for godly wisdom, prayer, and direction during our Sunday night Bible study that we did this summer. I've seen older women gather on Sundays to be led through a book study of Young, uh, of three young dynamic women leading our women's study in the spring. I've seen families and singles gather each week for meaningful discussion despite COVID within community groups each week. I've seen community leaders become, come to our meetings with a, a true hunger and desire to learn how to become racial bridge builders in this 
uh, world and this context that is continually promoting racial strife, strife in our world and in our nation. I've seen a predominantly white church call the first African-American pastor of Carlisle Avenue history and willfully submit to his leadership. I've seen this church at work. I've seen us have a humble persistence before God. Why do we need this humble persistence? The reason that we need this humble persistence is because the gospel humbled Paul. We see a difference in Paul, don't we? He went from being a murderer to being a missionary. Yes, young people, before Kanye West, there was Paul. (laughs) You see, Paul was a self-righteous person who boasted in his ability to keep the law, much like the rich young ruler did in Luke 18. And you remember what he said in verse 6? He says, regarding the law, I was blameless. You see, before Paul thought of himself as, as having arrived, he thought of himself as being blameless and perfect in every way that any human could attribute perfection. You see, but the gospel humbled Paul, and the gospel should also have a humbling effect on us as well. And now Paul wants them to know that he's, I'm on the journey with you. I've forsaken humanistic perfection. I've forsaken everything that the world would, 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 would give me credit for being perfect. I've forsaken that, and now I'm on the journey with you to see Christ as being the one who is a physical manifestation of my perfection. Paul shows great leadership here because he's identifying with the church of Corinth. He's coming alongside them and he's identifying with them as a fellow Christian believer. This is a good reminder for us that leadership is not lordship. Leadership is not about being superior. It's not being about being the top dog. It's about following Jesus. It's about becoming more like Jesus. And it's, a lot, it's about bringing others along for the journey as you continue to follow Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. That is what true leadership is. See, the gospel not only humble Paul, but the gospel should also humble us too. This is a warning for us as well as a church not to allow the past to control your future, or excuse me, allowing the past to control your future is similar to driving forward while looking into the rearview mirror. You see, you have a much bigger piece of glass in front of you called the windshield that should be, have our primary focus. And why is that? Well, because where you're going is a lot bigger than where you've been. Can you imagine someone driving down the road? <laughs> driving forward, but constantly always looking at that rearview mirror. An accident, it will definitely happen. It's not a question of if, but when. Again, I want to encourage our church because I've seen this in the life of our church. I've seen how the gospel is humbling you. 
I've seen that regardless of who's teaching on this stage, regardless who is bringing the word or leading a study group, I've seen you being engaged. I've seen you listen and not only listen, but I've seen you taking notes. Did you know that taking notes, that actually taking notes while someone is teaching is one of the, the, one of the most foremost signs of humility that there is? I've seen how you've been intentionally making time to be involved within the communal life of our church. It's a good reminder for us that community groups are for everyone, that we want you to be involved in this community group. If it's your first time visiting or if you've been visiting for five months or you've been a part of this church for 50 years, community groups are for everyone. We want you to be a part of one. Talk to me afterwards about how you can get plugged into the life of our community and our community groups. I've also seen us forsake perfectionism. I've seen us be honest about areas of sin and weakness within our lives and with with others. I've seen you invite others to know you through your weaknesses and not despite your weaknesses. So not only we we should have a humble persistence, but we should also have a humble passion. Look with me in verses 13 and 14. Paul says these words, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves at the very beginning, what is the prize that Paul is pursuing? What goal is he pursuing? And he's pers- what he's pursuing is this. He's pursuing the lifetime adventure of gaining a fuller knowledge of Christ by knowing him more and more in order to become more and more like him. He is pursuing a fuller knowledge of Christ by knowing him more and more, having an intimate relationship with Jesus knowing him as a resurrected Savior and King, in order to become more and more like him. And Paul says that his goal is threefold. His goal is, number one, to know Christ. His second goal is to become like Christ. And his third goal is to be all that Christ has in mind for him. This is a good reminder for us, as we say often here, that our vision of God determines our pursuit of God. If we don't see God rightly, if we don't see him for how he has revealed himself to be, there's no desire to pursue him in the way that Paul is calling us to pursue him. So our vision of God has to be big. It has to be grandiose. It has to be a beautiful vision of one that is worthy of us pursuing him to become like him. Love what Tozer says in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into your mind when you first think about God is the most important thing about you. I think that is so true. And as Christian believers, one of the greatest fights that we have to fight every single day of our lives is to think rightly about God. It's to think about God, how he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Not at how we think him to be, not as how we experience him to be, but how he's revealed himself in the Holy Scriptures, that God is holy and he is, he is love and he is kindness. He is a personification of everything that is good, beautiful, and pure. This is the God 
that is worthy of our pursuit. As we say often here, we have to, again, be, be mindful of the trap of not allowing our circumstances to define the character of God. You can't allow what you're going through, whether good or even bad, to define the goodness of God. God can't be good because your life is good. Because guess what? When your life gets bad, then you're going to deem God as being bad. And God can't be bad because your life is bad. You're going through a hard season right now because that negates the reality of who God is. God is a God who is is so big and so beautiful and so sovereign that nothing can negate his glory. Nothing can negate the beauty and the majesty of God. Not your suffering, not your trials, not your struggles, not your failure, not your sin, not your inability to have your desires fulfilled. Nothing can diminish the beauty and the majesty of our God. Amen. This is what we need to fight for each and every day. And as we just sang in that beautiful song about two or three times ago, God, you are good. You are good, God. I I may not be experiencing good in my life right now. I may not understand how you are good, but just because I can't understand how you are good doesn't mean that you are not good. You know, even as we fight for, you see the fight for racial justice in our country, we have to realize one thing about that. It's beautiful to fight for racial justice. Of course, I'm a black man, so I'm all about racial equality and and having those rights and laws being abolished in order for us to all see each other made in the image of God. That's what we're after. But we have to remember that as we fight for justice, we don't just fight for justice apart from the God of justice. We fight for justice because God loves justice. That's why we fight for justice. And we fight against injustice because God hates injustice. It's not a political game we're playing as Christians. It's not a political mantra or party that we're trying to be associated with. We fight for justice because we have a God who loves justice and has died for all to be justified before him. And to be made righteous by his blood and through his sacrifice. I don't know about you, but I hope that gives you hope today. I hope that gives you hope to know that God is worthy of your pursuit. That even when people don't understand it, when people think you're crazy, when people can't understand you, that God is still worthy of your allegiance. You know, one thing in life that I found to be true is this, is that when we're going through times of suffering and hardship, the question isn't, can God, can we trust God? The question has always been and always is, can God trust you? Can God trust you when you're suffering? Can God trust you when you're struggling? Can God trust you to remain faithful and true to him when things aren't going the the way that you want them to go in your life? Can God trust you? He is faithful and good. He's proved that self time and time again. He is a God from eternity past. 
And he has millions of people who are alive and, and many who are dead who can attest to the goodness and faithfulness of our God. So his faithfulness is not online here. The people, the person of, the, 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 of faithfulness is us. Can we remain faithful to our God and King even when we don't get our way? This is the question that we propose. And, and one of the things that we want to see here from the very beginning and the onset is that Christ is worthy of our pursuit because he is faithful. Consider Paul's analogy of running. I, I'm not a runner. I should probably have Chris Worley come up here and explain this because I know he's a runner. I'm not a runner. I, I would like to be a runner, but I hate running. So that's just a bad thing unless I'm playing basketball or something like that. But one thing I love about running is that running is measured by your distance from the starting point. It's, it's, it's all measured by you start at some place and it's measured by how you go from that place of beginning and how far you get from that place to reach the end. And here in this running analogy, Paul gives us three things that we need to forget. He said, forget what's behind. What Paul is saying here is to forget your failures. Forgetting and reaching are essential for running a race and growing spiritually. Every good runner knows that you can't look over your shoulder while running or you'll get distracted, you'll stumble, or you'll lose momentum. You have to keep your focus ahead. And what Paul is saying is that you have to, as a Christian, you have to understand that you have been justified in Jesus. Meaning that every sin that you have committed, those in the past, those in the present, and even those in the future are fully um, eradicated and erased through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Forget what is behind. Forget those failures. He tells us, number two, forget what is not. Meaning this, forget your frustrations. Knowing this, knowing that your past doesn't determine your future. You see, every Christian has failed God at some point, <laughs> yet there's only one who has never failed. And it's him that we worship and it's him that we claim our allegiance to, namely King Jesus. However, we must not interpret, forget about sin to mean we, that we avoid making a, a, situ, a, a, a situation right or asking for forgiveness. It doesn't mean that. We must deal with our sin but we must deal with our sin knowing that you have been forgiven. And because you have been forgiven, you now sought to make a wrong right and then forget and continue to run forward. Church family, don't let Satan bring up ac accusations against you if Christ has already forgiven you. Don't allow Satan to continue to bring accusations against you if God, through Christ, has already forgiven you. So forget what is behind, forget what is not. And then, and thirdly, forget what has been accomplished. Forget what has been found. What I love about Paul is this. Paul doesn't use past victories as an excuse not to press on in the present. He doesn't use past victories. And this is a good reminder for us that we should not use past victories to live or to use as an excuse to live a complacent life today. Stop allowing your past to give you permission to live complacent today. 
I love what Tony Evans says about this in the study Bible. He says this, to become an excellent Christian and fulfill your kingdom purpose, you too must have a short memory and clear direction. What aspects of yesterday must you forget? All of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You have got to let go of your successes, your failures, and the ways others have hurt you. It's not that you don't remember the past. It's that you don't allow the past to become a controlling factor in your life. Paul says this very clearly in verse 14. He says this, I pursue as my goal the promise promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. You know, two weeks ago, we, I gave you some don'ts for the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, I said this, don't despise ordinary obedience. Last week, we said, don't get bored with the gospel. Now, this week, we have another don't. Don't dwell on your past. Don't dwell on your past. And this is what Paul is getting to. He says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. And let's be honest with ourselves. If anybody had a reason, a good reason to forget what was behind them, it was Paul. Paul held the coats of those who stoned the deacon Stephen in Acts 7. You remember that? He was the one who persecuted the church as his greatest antagonist. He violently murdered innocent people as a Jew, and he falsely imprisoned many Christians as a Pharisee. Paul had a reason, and Paul had understanding of what it means to forget what is behind you and to pursue Christ today, now, and forever. So what do we need if we want to continue on in Christ's likeness? Paul gives us a couple of, couple of things. You see, if you want to grow in maturity, you need two things. You need passion and you need discipline. And you need both of these things. You can't have one or the other. Passion without discipline is like an uncontrolled wildfire. Proverbs 19.2 says it this way, Even zeal is not good without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily sins. It implies that anyone pursuing something with zeal and enthusiasm, but without knowledge, is likely to be unsuccessful and most likely even destructive. But you also need discipline. Discipline without passion is also like flicking a cigarette lighter. And I know many of us are, may not know what that is, a cigarette lighter, but back in the day, they used to have cigarette lighters that you could flicker. It's reliable but yet it's ineffective. It's consistent, yet insufficient, and it's dependable, yet it's insignificant. Knowledge without zeal is like having light without fire. It always lacks what is expected. And what Paul calls us to is to not have passion without discipline, to be an uncontrolled wildfire. He calls us not to have discipline without passion because that's reliable, but it's ineffective. What Paul calls us to is to have passion that is led by discipline in our lives. So what do we need to grow as Christians? We need to have a humble persistence. We need to have a humble passion. But look in verses 15 and 16. Next, we need to have a humble patience. He says this, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. If you think differently about anything, God will reveal also this to you. 
In any any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have obtained. I love this word mature here because it means being complete or being whole. Not perfect or flawless in every detail. It means to have something to be complete or to be whole. And what Paul is saying here is this, is that those who are mature should press on in the Holy Spirit's power, knowing that Christ will reveal and feel any discrepancy between what we are and what we should be. That Christ is the one who feels that chasm of what we are and what we should be. By his grace, he feels that chasm for us. And Paul knows what he's talking about again, because Paul is one who not as only, again, a a missionary, but he once was a murderer of the very people that he was calling to faith in Jesus. Remember Paul's theology? He says it throughout the book. Listen to the words that Paul says. Remember Philippians 1.6, he says, he who began a good work in you or started a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Christ. Remember Philippians 2.12 and 13 that we read last week, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Remember last week, Philippians 3, 9, he says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul knew all about the chasm between where you are and where you want to be. And he found Jesus to be sufficient and good enough to fill the gap between where he was and where he wanted to be. It's a good reminder for us as Christians that we cannot use the excuse that we have so much to learn. We can't use the excuse that, man, Christianity is just so big and so massive. I have so much to learn. I have have no reason to grow. In other words, Christ's provision of grace should not be used as an excuse for lagging devotion with him. Christ's provision of grace should not be used as an exemption for laissez-faire devotion with God. Christ's provision of grace should not be used as an insinuation for lackadaisical devotion with God. And what Paul is calling us to is simply this. He's calling us to live up to what you already know and to live out what you've already learned. Remember what Philippians 2.12 said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You have to play a part in this in the process. It's not an aspect of a laissez-faire relationship with God where God is the one who's just going to move you to spiritual maturity. It's an aspect of a both and, passion and discipline, following God to the end. Verse 17 says this, we see our humble practice. He says, join me in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I've often told you and now say again with tears that many as who live, many live as enemies of the cross. Their end is their destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Now notice what Paul says. He says, imitate me, but remember what Paul said in verse 12? He says, not that I'm already perfect, I've already attained this. So Paul is not perfect. He already mentioned this reality in verse 12. So what does he mean when he says, imitate me? 
Paul is not saying, copy me in everything that I, I do. But what Paul is saying here is that he wants the church to be encouraged and he wants to encourage them to follow his own example by focusing their lives on Christ Jesus. Now notice, Paul, being the murderer that he was, he now calls the church at Philippi to follow his own example. And Paul could tell people to follow his own example because following his own example was a testimony to his own character. He could call them to follow him because he was worthy of them following him in in his imperfect pursuit of Jesus. Can you and I do the same? If someone is struggling in life or struggling with things in their life, can you look at them and say, just follow my example. Imitate me, not that I'm perfect, but follow me as I imperfectly follow the one who is perfect. Maybe I should ask the question a different way. If someone did come to say to you and they said, hey, I'm a new Christian and I want to follow you, I want to imitate you, what kind of follower would they become? What type of habits would they pick up by following or imitating your example? Maybe ask it another way. Let me ask it another way. Who are you following? (laughs) Who is your example? And then likely, another way of asking that question is this way, is to who is following you? Who's following your example? It's a good reminder for us because Paul is saying this. He's, He's reminding us that excellent people Spiritually minded people who want to excel in their walk with God hang around other excellent people. They spend time with others who share the same goals. And I love what 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says about this. It says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. Careful who you're following because who you follow will be ultimately be who you will become. And it's a good reminder for us, even as a church today, that if you can't find an example to follow, if you, can, if you look around even this lawn this morning, you look around and you say, I can't find anyone in this, this lawn to, 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 to follow or to imitate, then you, it's a call for you to be the example for others to follow. Just because you can't find someone to follow doesn't give you the right not to follow. It gives you the greater ambition and the greater call to be the example of the one for someone else to follow in humble submission. Lastly, notice what Paul says here about these people, these enemies of the cross. He says, many live as enemies of the cross. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. 
These people, these enemies of the cross were simply just self-indulgent Christian. They were people who claimed to be Christians, but they didn't live up to Christ's model of servanthood and self-sacrifice. These people satisfied their own desires even before thinking about the needs of others. They lived as an enemy of cross and they engaged in lives of self-gratification and self-centeredness. They served their own lustful appetites. They sought to please themselves before anyone else, and they became a law unto themselves. And Paul says that their glory is their shame, meaning that they show off things that they should be ashamed of showing off. They enjoyed and celebrate what often offended God and things that God had called his people to avoid at all costs. It reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. When, when Paul writes these words, he says, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding on to the form of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul says about these people, he says this, avoid these people at all costs. Avoid these people. These are the type of people that respond to me as much like my dog responds to me. As you guys know, I got a puppy three weeks in, four weeks in, and still going strong by the grace of God. But you know what? I think my dog is starting to like me for the wrong reasons. And what I mean by that is this, is that I think he just sees me as being a gourmet chef, the one who just kind of cooks his food every day and puts it before him. You know, I want him to love me for me and not just for what I provide for him. So my wife gives me good, exa- good, good thoughts and instructions. She says, hey, go play with the dog. Go, go love on him. You know, when he comes around, be happy and excited to have him around. And I'm trying to do that. I really am. I'm trying my best. But it's sometimes hard to do that when you had a bad day or you're just not thinking about things. But I think that he's gotten the message that maybe I don't like him too much. So I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best to be intentional with him and, and not just give him food and walk away. But I give him his food and I go on and good job eating your food, buddy. You know, give him a little treat now and then. Keep treats in my pocket. So then when he comes to me, I can give him and and, and give him these things so that he can learn to love and, and respect me and, and we can grow a relationship. You see, the problem with these evildoers or these people that Paul is talking about here is a lot like uh, the problem I'm having with my dog is that oftentimes when we go to God, God doesn't just want us to look at his hands. He wants to, us to look at his face. A lot of times we go to God and we just say, hey, God, what, what can you give me? What can you provide me? What can I have, right? Looking at his hands and neglecting his face, neglecting the relationship and neglecting the one who wants to have a relationship with you and not just wants to have a relationship with you, but the one who died so that you might have a relationship with him. We want to be people and God is calling us to be people who look to God and look at his face and not just his hands. Not just his hands, not just what he, he gives. And not just looking at the gifts that he gives as an expression of his goodness, but knowing that this good gift that you have given me comes from a good and righteous and beautiful God. 
And I don't just take this gift and run off and I'm satisfied, but I take the gift and I look back to you and I give thanks to you because you're, you are good and you're better than any gift that you could ever give me. The blessing is not the gift. The blessing is always the giver. It's always the giver. There is no gift that you can give your children that is greater than the love that you have for them. It may be a manifestation of the love that you have for them, but there's no gift that you can give or you can receive from someone else that is greater than the love that that person who's given it to you has for you. And the same relationship happens with God. That's what James 1, 4, 17 says, that every good and perfect gift comes from God, the Father of lights, where there's no shadow or variation of change. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Not from your salary, not from your 401k, not from your savings, not from your in-laws, but from God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And every gift is good because, not just because the gift is good, but because he is good. So up to this point, we've seen five ways to grow in the spiritual maturity. Humble per- persistence, humble passion, humble patience, humble practice. Look at with me in verses 20 and 21. We see our final one here, humble perspective. Paul writes these words. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a God, for a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. This is a good reminder for us that you don't, don't allow your earthly experience to crowd out, crowd out the reality of your he- heavenly citizenship. We're to focus on the returning king and his kingdom and not on this world and its lesser kingdoms. And as I was studying this week, I was reminded of this term vice regent or vice regency. And a a vice regent is a person who acts for a regent or a person who acts in the name of another. And often in wartime in ancient times, when a king would come and Um, oppress or take over a country or a land, he would then take that land and then he would leave a a vice regent or he would leave either something or someone to remind the people of that land that they have been conquered. Those things normally was a statue. A statue would be erected in the likeness or image of a king, or it would be like a governor or mayor in our, our term. A person would stand as a reminder that they are now under the lordship of another. When Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, what he's saying is this. He's saying that you and I, that the church of the living God, that every single person who calls Jesus as Lord and Savior, you serve as a vice regent in this world. As we gather on this lawn and as neighbors go up and down the street, And as neighbors who come down the street and stop and join us, they see us and they're reminded that God's kingdom has come and that God is reigning and living in this earth. You serve as a vice regent. You serve as one who declares the majesty and the beauty and the reign of the one true living God. That's why it's not just important to believe the gospel, as Paul says in Philippians 1, 29, but also to suffer for it. It says in Philippians 1, 29, it's been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also be willing to suffer 
for him because your suffering matters before God. And what comes out of you when you suffer matters to God. If we truly can understand our identity as as those who are vice regents and those who are not just kind of wandering in the the land, our name speaks to it as well, being sojourn. We are sojourn Church Carlisle. Sojourn is an alien resident. It's one who is a visitor or one a, a passerby. We are just passing through this world as we wait the full consummation that Jesus will bring in his second coming. You have a plan and you have a purpose in God's redemption of this world as his church. First Peter 2.9 says it this way, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Titus 2.14 says it this way, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you and, and praise you that you, God, you have given us the means and you have given us the opportunity to grow in spiritual maturity in you. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to exemplify that in every way. Help us to have humble persistence, God. Help us to humbly acknowledge that we haven't arrived yet. God, help us to have a humble passion, to passionately pursue greater knowledge of Christ in our life. Help us to have humble patience, God, to never lose the wonder of the gospel. Help us to have a humble practice, follow Christ-centered and heavenly-minded examples that you've provided in the church. And finally, Lord, help us to have a humble perspective. Help us to live in light of your, our true citizenship as being citizens of heaven and not of earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.